This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. I'm Eric. I'm Jenny with a blog called Reading Envy. Hello, everybody. Hello. And Hello. welcome. And we're, we're here to talk about a book called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Is that right? Hope I read the right book. Yes. <laughs> the cover has an upside-down dog. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's a poodle, but it, it, it's actually a badly designed poodle, because in the book it's not supposed to be one of these shaved dogs, you know, that's been sculpted. But on the cover it has been sculpted. Ah. And there's no fork on the cover. There's no garden fork garden on the cover. Garden fork on the true. cover, right. Thank goodness. <laughs> wow. Actually, yeah, this, this is, um, I should have, yeah, this is a really badly designed cover, I, I think. It's so boring. It's all recognizable, though. I, I guess that's what they're going for. Although in the books, some people like are, are tearing the, that hole. The dog is in like a hole and people keep tearing it. Well, what did you like about it, Eric? I like that the point of the dog is that it was visible by its absence. Just an outline, you mean? Well, it's it's a cutaway. So oh, yeah, there's right. a dog-shaped yeah, hole the in the cover. Back. Yeah. Right. So hmm. that's you know that's sort of what's going on in the in the novel is that things are noticed by their absence. Hmm. Hmm. Oh well, I guess that's hmm. um that's um. Reading deeply, I, I've got a copy of the hardcover and the paperback here. So, oh. um, the hardcover is, is actually embossed, uh, whereas the paperback. Oh, yeah, I guess they they refined the meaning on the on the paperback <laughs> version. <laughs> well, that meaning goes with the there's you know the inside the book there's the a direct reference to the Conan Doyle uh, allusion. Yeah, and that's the whole point is that the. It's important that the dog didn't bark. So the the real clue is the thing that isn't there. Oh, I didn't um, even, I didn't even clue that. Uh, right. So that's the title of the book. It's referenced in book, and having a cutaway in the shape of a dog makes you think of a dog because it's not there. So that's what I meant when I said I liked it. It seemed to me to resonate thematically. Oh uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I see what you're saying now. Well, I I suppose. Um, I suppose I just need more, uh, like I, I see this, when I saw this book, I thought, oh, I've heard of this book, but it doesn't sound that good. But then I started reading it, and I thought, oh, it actually is good. Hmm. And, you know, the cover didn't inspire me to read it, is what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah, so wh- why did you select yeah, this one, Jesse? book, and usually you don't like them. You are correct. It is a mainstream book, and usually I don't like them, and... um uh, the reason I, I thought we should read this book is because I started reading it for school. And I thought, holy cow, this is a good book. Um, and I guess after the... It's hard to know how many chapters in, but uh, I would say maybe five or six chapters in, I, I suggested this as a book to read. Hmm. Um, and you're right about it being a mainstream book, and I normally don't like them. And um, I'm sad to say that I actually really don't like this book that much. You know what? It's it's just it it starts off as a mystery and it becomes something else. Um, 
and I think that's what I, I think it's just badly structured. I thought it was very good. Now, when you say you when you say you read it for school mm. with with students that you teach or for your own school, yeah. Uh same thing. Oh, 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 oh! You mean for my own schooling? Yes, and and for students that I teach as well. Yes. Okay. Well, because I had a really interesting conversation with um, a librarian because I couldn't find the book in the library, and it turns out it was in the juvenile section. Oh. And she says it's classified for like as a young adult book. Hmm. And I just, oh. I thought that was interesting. I think that's uh, well, really, really interesting. Yeah. It's uh, it, here's the um, inside of the the copyright page. You know, it's got the filing for the uh, for the old uh, card catalog. It says autism fiction, savant savant syndrome fiction, England fiction, <laughs> and uh, filed by title as well. Um, but uh, he's a fiction author. No, it's not. Uh, he's yeah. It there was a quote of Asperger's on the cover at some point, but. Um, uh, the, the main character is not supposed to have Asperger's exactly, um, or autism. It's undefined. It's, it's undefined. Yeah. He did that on purpose, I think. Yes, because he's he's not a you know. Not, not I think I functioning autism as Asperger's, like uh, Temple Grandin. You know, it's very. Uh, the more I look into, because I I've looked at this subject before with um, the Speed of Dark and uh, a bunch of other books and. The more I look into it, the less uh, I can say about it. Um, <laughs> autism and, I did and li- Asperger's are very hard to understand. I, I read this book uh, once in the context of a, of a reading group that I'm part of. Uh, one of the men, about halfway through our two-hour session, uh, a, a fellow who almost never... Uh, joins in us in the months that we read fiction um, but came for this book mentioned halfway through the session that he has a an autistic grandchild and his report was that this book was absolutely right on that this was this gave us an inside look at the mind of someone who's autistic where along the spectrum none of us had the the nerve to ask um, our colleague, but, but this is what he said. A couple of weeks after that, I was at a party and ran into a colleague of mine who uh, used to be head of our clinical psychology program at the University of Michigan, and so he's, he's quite, quite renowned. And I asked him if he had read this book, and he said he had. And I recounted the report of my reading group uh, friend, to which my psychologist friend said, oh no, that's wrong. This book is not at all what it's like to be inside the mind of someone with autism. Um, so I put those two aside, you know, in a little package that said, how the heck do I know? Because um, I, I can't tell really what's in somebody else's head and how do they think they know. Um, and this very week, uh, a student of mine came in to ask for help because she's having trouble engaging with the particular course. Um, and then she told me, here we are halfway through the semester, um, she's a first-year student with Asperger's. 
and she just feels that she has no solidity in her life because it's the first time she doesn't know where her parents are physically. She can't feel that they're around her when she goes home at night. Um, and so I don't know what it's like to be inside the head of somebody who's autistic. I know what it looks like from the outside. Um, and I, because this, this current student is not the only such person I've met uh, along the spectrum. But I've got to say that if a work of fiction is supposed to give us a sense that we're sharing someone's experience, I thought that this was a liberating book because it gave me respect for a different kind of experience, whether or not it's true to any particular autistic person or Asperger's person in the world or not. I think it generates a kind of tolerance, and I believe that's a, a moral virtue that books can perform, and this one does. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with that 100%. Do you remember, Jesse, that video that your mom posted by Alif Shafak called uh, The Politics of Fiction? It was a TED, no, one of those TED Talks. Okay. Anyway, I, I've listened to that talk you know, several times um, because I was so engaged by it, but um, it, it says that's one of the powers of fiction is um, allowing you to experience the other and um, coming through that with a respect for the other. And I've, I think I think this book does a marvelous job with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a it 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 I I don't know how accurate it is. I don't think we can know these sorts of things very well uh, because even when I'm reading a book with a, a neurotypical main character, um, it's a construction, and I don't I don't have a uh, third person you know outside point of view of my own life and my own story. So, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to know. However, I, I think we do get a pretty good character and a mind in this character, in this character. And, uh, he seems like a kid and he seems like, um, someone with extraordinary abilities and, and, uh, extraordinary deficits. And it Hmm. is, uh, it's, it's like a very compelling character. Yeah. You know, I, um, I think that's kind of the point, though, because I think people with different types of issues get boxed into a list of traits rather than being seen mm-hmm. as people. And I um, I read an article called Constituting Christopher Disability Theory and the book, you know, specifically about the book. And the author made the point of this is just an example of the possibility of being on the spectrum. You know, it's just one possibility of traits and um I guess, coping mechanisms that a person would create for themselves, like all the rules that he has and how he deals with the stress of, you know, his train trip and everything. Mm-hmm. It's his own view of the world. So Yeah. He makes a lot of lists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something so else, too. I, there's a lot of myself in uh, Christopher. Uh, you know, I, I see things... You know, you say make lists, you know. Uh, God loves lists. I love lists, you know. But uh, it's just that, you know, it's interesting. You know, that's kind of what connects me with it all, you know, and that's why I felt it was so powerful. Um, but I, I thought it was a, a very good book. I, I don't think it's a five-star book because um, it fell apart for me at the end. But um, I did enjoy it very much. I think it just it just went on. It should have been cut off shortly after the 
revelation uh, of the you know the the mystery because it's no it's no longer a mystery novel and it turns into a family drama which is long played out and poorly played out in a way that I think we could predict and see as not particularly yeah, but that, that was one of the most interesting things about the book, I felt, because we as readers knew what was going on before the character did. And um, mm-hmm. it's interesting, you know, it was in first person, but apparently, you know, the impression was given that he was writing it as things were happening. You know, he would write it that night or something like that. So that was kind of an interesting way to put it together. But, you know, he would just describe the reactions of these adults and what these adults were saying and, and acting like. And we as readers understood what these people were doing, even though Christopher really had no clue. Yeah, and, you know, that's that's typical of this kind of fiction, I think. You know, if you go back to um, uh, to Flowers for Algernon, right, it's, you've got an unreliable narrator who's very naive about what's going on around him, and as as the that story progresses, we get a a better sense of his understanding of hey I've been uh, lied to here and they they're making fun of me there. Um, it shows up in the Speed of Dark as well, and I, I think we get that in in this mainstream book. You know this popular book, this book that you know I, I don't know if it was an Oprah pick, but it's the sort of book that you know a non science fiction re- reader will pick up and read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just I thought, well, I've, I've seen this before, um, but what is lacking is after the mystery, which I think is actually a pretty pretty good damn mystery. Actually, um, we just get a family drama. I guess I didn't view it that way, Jess. Um, it it seems to me that this book actually has something in common with with Oedipus. Um, I'm thinking Sophocles here, not Freud. Uh, that. And to say that something is a family drama includes a whole range of works all the way from the trivial to something as deeply powerful in our culture and in our minds as Oedipus. This Oedipus, you know, when he becomes king of Thebes and marries the widow of the dead king in order to legitimize his position, thinks he wants information and that that will bring justice, mm. and sends out to find out who killed the Laius. And, of course, it turns out the information has much different meaning than the meaning that he had expected it would have, just as the oracle has different meaning than he expects when he is told he'll kill his father and marry his mother, or the Laius expects when the oracle tells him, you'll have a child who will kill you. Um, the, this book, it seems to me, in part, is about trying to find real meaning in mere information. And it starts out as a detective story where Christopher seeks, you know, just information. You know, who killed Wellington? Which is an interesting choice of name, given that this is a British, right? And uh, and his name, Christopher, you can't help but think of um, you know, the, the bearer of Christ and also Christopher Robin. There's something, you know, naively wonderful going on. This is a British book, and mm-hmm. I think these references are real. He starts out just trying to get information, and he loves information. He loves mathematics and so on. But once he has the information, then he tries to figure out why this happened. 
then he starts to go for meaning. And I think that by moving from why did it happen, from what did it, ha- what happened, that is who did it, to why did it get done, um, he's, he's learning how to go from merely collecting information to trying to get meaning in his life from that information. And what he ultimately is able to do in seeking the meaning of information is knit his family back together more tightly than it had been before. And so the the seeking of information is just um, the, the sterile edge of a, a tool that can allow us to, to move to something uh, much deeper and more important. And I, I believe that this book is trying to get us to understand that, that, you know, not just list making that, that Scott and I, too, have in common with Christopher. <laughs> you know, I think loads of us, I, I'm, I certainly love to collect facts, but my real joy comes when I understand that the facts fit into larger patterns and they help to build a sense of my life. And this poor narrator is so comparatively isolated except for his relationship with his father. And the tragedy of the dog's death gets him to cross the street. And the crossing of the street is a foreshadowing of the greater thing of getting onto the train. And when we see him on the train hiding in the luggage rack, you know, there's an implicit metaphor that for most of the people in the world, Christopher is just baggage. Right, but we know better than that, and he's trying to discover where his real meaning is. And by bringing his mother back into his life, in that sense, it's a reverse Oedipus story. It's finding the meaning of information that you didn't presuppose you knew the the meaning of, and that I think is is wonderfully uplifting. I I found the book joyful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, besides, uh, I think. Go ahead, Good. Tim. Well, I, I just wanted you to really grow in the end because at the end, all he seemed to care about was taking the math test. He didn't seem to really emotionally connect to either his mother or father at the end. Did you really see some growth? I mean, besides I thought, traveling. I thought that the point of taking the math test is that he was willing to consider the possibility of leaving home to go to university. And that okay. really did represent enormous growth on his part. I also want to ask you, a few times uh, you guys have said uh, at the end. Um, mm-hmm. What do you mean at the end? I, I thought that the end was the appendix. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, when, when I said that, you know, and I used the word fall apart, and that was probably a little too harsh, but it, it, I, 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 had an uns, I was unsatisfied at the end. Um, I didn't feel like it was done, and I can't explicitly point to why, but it just sort of stopped. That's how I felt about it. And even though, you know, it, it was like, you know, Jesse's talking about the mystery and everything. Th- those things were resolved early in the book. Um, I don't know if that's why I felt that way, you know, you know, being mostly a genre reader. But I read a lot of general fiction as well. But um, that's just how I felt about this one is a, a sort of abrupt tapering off ending that I didn't feel wrapped up. And maybe that was the author's intent. Yeah, you know, in some ways, Christopher's going to have to continue his whole life dealing with this condition. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> it's yeah. kind of true to life that, you know, okay, he passed his test and that was a good thing and life kind of goes on and, you know, there isn't really any resolution that you can have for that, I don't think. Yeah, yeah I, that's a good I, point. 
I think that that's perfectly legitimate, but I just don't want to read about it. <laughs> you know, like the I, mainstream. I, 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 that, you know what? I think that's really it for me. If it doesn't, if if it shows a slice of life that doesn't have some interestingly explored ideas that aren't domestic, you know, like uh, yeah, he's got an abusive father, and his his mother is. Uh, I mean, she's a bad mother. She's bad at mothering. She's not the worst in the world, but she's not very good at it. And his fa- the father, he's he it turns out that he's not as competent uh, at controlling his uh, his temper and his frustration as as we at first thought he was. And I think that's a a good revelation. But would, the wrap up is three quarters of the book. Would we call his father abusive? Or just human. Well, no, I I shouldn't say. Uh, if I said abusive, what I meant is uh, murderous. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that one. <laughs> Peter would not be pleased with his father. True. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> maybe I'm just too easily impressed. Uh, but there are there are things that in this book that I do think of as having wider importance. Um, and since that that's a criterion you're raising, Jesse, I'll I'll take a stab at it. Okay. Um, Chapter, no pun intended. <laughs> right. Ah, <laughs> um, uh, you said that just in time. Um, chapter <laughs> chapter one thirty nine ends uh, with this. It's uh, on page ninety in my edition, and this shows that sometimes people want to be stupid, and they do not want to know the truth, and it shows that something called Occam's razor is true. And Occam's razor is not a razor that men shave with, but a law. And it says, Entia non sunt multiplicanda praetor necessitatum, which is Latin, and it means, no more things should be presumed to exist than are absolutely necessary. Which means that a murder victim is usually killed by someone known to them, and fairies are made out of paper, and you can talk to someone who is dead. And I read this passage... And I think, my goodness, maybe Occam's razor, which we all rely on, maybe it's just because we want to be stupid. We want to just suppose that the the quickest answer is the right one and the longer ones are wrong. But what's quick and what's long depend upon how we are willing to construe the environment. And indeed, people do want to be stupid. That's what you were saying, Jenny, about people getting labeled and treated a certain way because, well, now I know what box they fit into. Yes. Right. And, and the way that last paragraph moves from so a murder victim is usually killed by someone known to them. Well, yes, that's true. Fairies are made out of paper. Well, as opposed to being real beings, yeah, I suppose that's true. And you can't talk to someone who is dead. Those are not in the same category. But look at how that sentence is constructed. It starts with the murder victim and it ends with someone who is dead. In between is a fairy, and they're usually made out of paper. Now, in fairy tales, like Cinderella, if you ask, where does the fairy godmother come from? If you read the whole, the 200 and some odd tales that the Grimm brothers gathered together, uh, especially if you read them in, in other versions, um, you will quickly realize that the fairy godmother is the spirit of the deceased mother. <laughs> and this, this section here, you know, 
a murder victim is killed by someone known to them. Well, it's because of the relationship between uh, the mother and the rest of the member, and you know, the son and the husband, that she appears to be dead, that she's gone. And so for, for Christopher, there is no fairy godmother because you can't speak to someone who is dead. But if the person's really alive, if you don't just be stupid and make believe that you know the easiest answer, but look for the longer answer, sometimes you'll find a better answer. Uh, that seems to me to be really a very powerful passage, and it tells me a lot about how people ought to think about their own lives, regardless of whether or not they're in this situation or have those mental um, propensities. Uh, in in uh, science fiction, we call this uh, this sort of stuff, you know, the all the, all the stuff that I really liked in this book, the info dumping. I thought was wonderful. You know, the way he can bring in uh, facts and interesting ideas into the into the narrative to help him understand the world and the problems that he's having, as well as entertain the reader. I, I love that stuff, and I think it works immensely well, including in. You know, for the I think the mystery is an excellent one because it it does explore. You know, his mother isn't really dead, so how can he talk to her? How can she be talking to him, right, through those right. letters? Um, the, the digressions are definitely one of the highlights of the book. Like I didn't even understand the expand the universe theory until he explains it <laughs> in this book. Well, like, uh, like I, the night I sky should be all stars. Unless excellent, it's expanding. you know, writer of of. Uh, prose, but I, I just my problem is with the structure, not with the 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 what what's on the content of every page. I think the content of every page is is absolutely perfect. I I, I see no problems at all. I mean the characters are run a, a wonderful gamut. You know Siobhan, who we never see um, uh, speaking directly. Usually it's it's sort of indirect. We get. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we get a very indirect view of her because we don't spend a lot of time at his school. We we hear what she says, uh, you know, in this case, and what he said about that. And uh, I, I guess we get that for all the characters, but especially for for her. Uh, what a wonderful character because she shows up as a as a um, a thoughtful person who's very good at her job. Uh, not judgmental in the in the wrong sense, but judgmental in the correct sense, right? Sometimes, you know, uh, a parent who's left bruises on his or her child is not an abusive parent, right? But in the end, maybe she's wrong. And I was more curious about uh, about what to think about the relationship between um, the father and the son than I was about, you know, how, whether he's going to make it to his mom and whether his mom's, you know... I just, there was so much time spent on that train. That's my only problem with this book. Other than that, I think this is one of the best structures for a story. You know, the, I think just the, the way it was put together was wrong. Not the... All of... Uh, on every page, there's a gem of some kind, I would say. I was on the edge of my seat that entire time he was on the train, you know, in the and the train station, everything. I was very engaged with it. Oh, and I should mention too, I listened to the audiobook mm-hmm. and it was terrific. Um, yeah, me I, I, too. I don't know who the uh, narrator was, but he was awesome. It was really mm-hmm. good. 
it was really funny because I read this book the first time when it first came out. So it's been probably about five or six years since I've read it. And I was listening to it and I actually emailed Tam and I said, I don't know if I have the right file because it seems to be skipping chapter numbers. <laughs> it took me a while to get to that point where he explains his obsession with the prime numbers. But I was just like, wait. That was chapter 11, but there haven't been 11 chapters. It's just the little details like that that mm-hmm. I think really make it. Well, uh, every, everyone who read the audiobook, I think, started off with that problem. But, yeah. uh, you know, they said, oh, this, this audiobook's missing files, right? Starts with chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in the paper book, you, you can see that the, the page numbers are there. The page numbers don't follow a strange uh, pattern uh, like the chapters do. Uh, so, I mean, in some way, you'd think this wouldn't work very well as an audiobook, but um, even like, uh, was it Tam, you were saying you need the, there's a lot of graphs and charts in... in oh, yeah, in the book, there's a lot of charts, and I figured we'd get all confused listening no, to all of you, but, I didn't but get it was fine. at all. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I had the book on hand, but generally, um, it was handled so well, you, you wouldn't even know uh, that it was... You know that there were these charts and graphs because it was all explained, and what wasn't wasn't um, easy to explain. You know, like he says, I know what Orion Orion looks like the uh, the uh, the hunter in the sky. You know, so that wasn't a problem for me. But I guess for uh, people who um, who maybe uh, they're not as familiar with some of these concepts, it would be more difficult. I yeah, I went that- back and thumbed through a few, like the. The chart he talks about where you can never have more than four, you know, he's moving the things around and you can't get very far in the chart. And it's something he does in his head to calm him down. Mm. Do you remember that part? Like, mm. I mean, it was fine to just hear about it, but to see an actual representation of it made a lot more sense to me. Hmm. I think one of the reasons to uh, to have that visually is so that you will do that. That is... It's difficult for most people, and I mean, Christopher is fictional, but it certainly is difficult for most people to do in their heads what's being proposed here is happening in one's head. And so by having the visual, we can understand what it means to do this and how hard that would be for us to do that and get a more visceral sense of what the cognitive process is. So the the visuals here, it seems to me, can, as you say, having listened to the audiobook, you've listened to the audiobook, they can be left out, but I think that, you know, you could also leave out adjectives that wouldn't make the book ununderstandable, but I think it would make it poorer. Do you guys know what the most common word in this book is? I, I think uh, it's just, I, I haven't counted, but I think it's pretty obvious. Maths? And. Oh. And. And, 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 right? Every, every time he, he, I mean, it, this is one of the ways we can tell he's young, right? His, his writing is a little <laughs> bit stylized towards the, the younger person, right? So when he has a, uh, anytime he's doing a, a, uh, an info dump, there's about six or seven ands connecting. And then sentences start with and. Chapters start with and. I think there's, yeah, yeah, listen to this. Then I asked, did Mr. Shears kill mother? And Mrs. Alexander said, kill her? And I said, yes. Did he kill mother? 
And Mrs. Alexander said, no, no, of course he didn't kill your mother. And I said, but didn't he give her stress so that she died of a heart attack? And Mrs. Alexander said, I honestly don't know what you're talking about, Christopher. And I said, it becomes transparent, right? At some point, it becomes transparent. But it's like he's adding things up, right? He is the detective uh, that he's trying to be, and he's adding things up. I, I mean, the thing that I liked about this book so much, other than everything I've said, said before, is this is a very true book. It's, it's, a, it's about truth. Mm-hmm. In a way, uh, uh, Scott and I have talked about truth before, but um, he is looking for truth and trying to always understand what truth is. And when he talks about about telling lies, um, he's got a very simple and uh, reasonable philosophy on it. It's uh, Lies are hard to tell because they expand possibilities infinitely in all directions. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> and um, I, I think this this is this is why uh, it's science fiction and mysteries go together, right? It's about truth, trying to find the truth. Science is about trying to find what's going on, and uh, mysteries are trying to find out what happened. Um, and when it focuses on that, it works immensely well. I can I can I can listen to it endlessly, and and it also allows us to. To look at the hard truths, right? If if we uh, if we're going along and we don't realize um, that the father is the murderer, if we don't realize that until he does, we're going to be in for a hard truth, uh, like he is. But I was suspicious uh, as soon as the father started getting mad at him about it. Right? Stop investigating. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, okay, well. Could have been him. I, I wonder why we, he would have done it. And we're sort of, um, we're left not seeing it from his perspective, but understanding, aha, the the cause of the murder was actually frustration over the main character. The cause of the murder was the frustration over the main character. The the problems of his marriage were exacerbated by the difficulty of of having a son who was difficult to raise and having a mother who wasn't well suited to raising that child and having a father who, although generally well suited, had uh, quite a temper on him. Those mm-hmm. are the most interesting things to me. The the exploration later on of, of whether he's going to... Yeah, I, I was like Scott. I was saying, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. And then we get to the end and it's like, well, it sort of peters out. And I go, oh, okay. Well, obviously, obviously, uh, you know, there are differences in our personal reactions. Scott yeah. is is riveted by the train ride, and you're you no. Find I, it tedious. I, I thought I, I thought the train ride would be good. I I thought that there was going to be something going to happen. I was I, I was worried that it wasn't going to be. Uh, <laughs> um, I thought I thought, oh my god, is this turning into a family drama? <laughs> and it did. Which, from my viewpoint, was a good thing, but <laughs> not from yours. I really like that you highlighted the use of and. Um, you said he's adding things up. Uh, it seems to me that there are two other uh, implications to the uh, the comparatively dense use of the word and. The first is in the common phrase, well, gee, that just doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. I mean, lots of things that add up for us. I mean, you figured who the 
murderer of the dog was way before Christopher did. Um, things that add up for us don't add up for Christopher. And it's, it's easy at first to dismiss his incapacity to reach the right sum um, as a consequence of his mental condition. But it, in fact, ultimately, when we feel some connectedness with, with him as a human being, when we develop sympathy for him, um, I think that we realize that things don't add up because of viewpoint, because you know we have preconceptions about things, and if things don't fit in, uh, as it said in that passage I quoted, sometimes people want to be stupid. And so things, he's trying to get things to add up, but sometimes they just don't add up. But there's a second thing, or second I would add, third in addition to what you said, um, and that is because he does not have a framework in which to put things, or many things come to him without frameworks, all he can do is say, and, and, and. He can't say, but, or, by the way, or, and more so. He doesn't have the, the contexts that demonstrate relationships, so things are merely one thing after another. Um, and having said that that style is characteristic, then, of his inability to, to draw frames, but, but we try to, I, I'd like to push further and say that for me, at least, a lot of the pleasure of this book comes from feeling the resonance inside many of those choices that I think, you know, other people may think of. Uh, I mean, when you use the word info dump, Jesse, you're, mm-hmm. you're suggesting something negative. I mean, certainly in the field of science fiction. I uh, love info dumps. I love Oh, them. you do? Oh, <laughs> I love them. Well, great. Okay. Well, then, I, then you don't mean something pejorative. I'm, no. I'm taking a look at Chapter 19. Um, it starts out, chapters and books are usually given the cardinal numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, and so on. But I have decided to give my chapters prime numbers, two, three, five, seven, eleven, thirteen, and so on, because I like prime numbers. Okay, so he's telling us that he feels he can make a choice. That's a good thing. He's feel, telling us that he isn't bound by the world's conventions. That's a good thing. But the implied author has given us... Um, two groups of six numbers. The first group is a simple half dozen and frankly goes on twice as long as you or I are likely to think it needs to go. I mean, we're likely to think one, two, three would be enough to understand how the numbers go. The reason that it goes on more is that one, two, three also happens to be a series of prime numbers. So if the aim is to make a distinction between a series of prime numbers and a series of cardinal numbers, Christopher is right to extend it beyond one, two, three. Then we get to that set of prime numbers, which he could, of course, have stopped at 11 or gone on to 17, um, but instead he stops it at 13, which is not a random number. Um, In fact, if six is a half dozen, 13 is a superstitious number because it's one more than... Well, it's a, it is a baker's dozen, but it's also a ba- you know, baker's baker's street dozen. Oh, oh <laughs> very good. So, is there a chapter two twenty one B in this? Uh, anyway, <laughs> that would be excellent. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So then he says, so, so I because I like prime numbers. I, you know, for most of us, most of the time, if you say I did this because I like it, that's considered adequate, right? I mean, why did you have chicken for dinner? I had chicken because I like chicken. But in a novel. If somebody says, I like something, 
I believe that it's reasonable to ask, what does it mean to like something? What does it mean about the individual that the author has taken the time to slow us down and point out that this is what he likes? So then Christopher says, this is how you work out what prime numbers are. And he begins to show you what prime numbers are. All right? And he gives you all of that info dump stuff, which is really nifty. And you've got, it looks like you're just dealing in the world of information and you're getting all this nifty stuff. But the last paragraph of chapter 19 says, prime numbers are what is left when you have taken all the patterns away. I think prime numbers are like life. They are very logical, but you could never work out the rules, even if you spent all your time thinking about them. And so what Christopher... That made me think of rationalism versus versus, um, empiricism. You know, rationalism is is what math is is about, but life is not. (laughs) You cannot work out the rules to the universe just by, by, uh, by thinking. You have to experience Yes, uh, you are absolutely right. But I, I don't think that Chris, Christopher may be thinking about that. And you are responding to what Christopher is saying. And that's all right, and it's in the book, it seems to me. But it seems to me this other thing is also in the book, and that is the author is letting us know that Christopher doesn't want to be thought of as part of pattern. Christopher yearns to be thought of as unique. Christopher yearns to be thought of as not just the product of a condition or someone who is produced by a certain life experience, that there is something in Christopher that is unique. He likes prime numbers. He wants life to be a prime number. He is willing to always look for the individual as opposed to the pattern, and that's one of the reasons that I think we like Christopher. He talked about his name, too. Did you mention that already? Christopher, yeah, he's he, like uh, carrying Jesus or something, and says, yeah, I, I don't want to mean that. I want to mean me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, and so, every, everywhere in this book, when I see an info dump, I'm also saying a sort of implicit metaphor, something that's revelatory about Christopher's view of life or Christopher's understanding of himself. And time and again, I find myself thinking, "Yep, this guy's got it right." This guy has an, an, a desire to understand things in a certain way and to be a certain way that we can all learn from. Um, so I, I find myself not, uh, I mean, I like the info dumps for the info dumps. But, you know, when he gives us a proof uh, that a certain equation will certainly always define a right triangle, part of me is thinking, and he needs those triangles to be right. Because anything that doesn't just stand up and follow a set of rules is hard to deal with in the world. I, uh, I, I wanted to. It's funny because you know that's in the um, that's in the appendix, and the library copy I have in hand, paper uh, hardcover. Actually, somebody has done. I love it. They made uh, a little penciled note right beside where it says, you know, how to make. How to, uh, so let the hypotenuse of the right angle ABC be AB, and let AB equal 65, and let BC equal 60. <laughs> and so they've actually drawn it in there. Maybe the author autographed it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's terrific, but I think that's why I asked you guys before, what did you mean by the end? It seems to me that it is not trivial that that appendix is at the end. Because the very last word of this, I mean, the last thing that Christopher says nominally addressed to us is and so now I've proved to myself that I can do anything. Hmm. 
But the last thing that he actually presents us that he does is demonstrate that he understands a pattern which can make sure that things are always rectified. That's a human need that he shares with us. He just doesn't want to do it stupidly. That's not even in the audiobook. That's what I was just going to say. You know, I don't even know for certain what you're talking about, so I think I've missed something. Well, mm-hmm. along the way, he, he gives, uh, there's this thing about right triangles, and he, he mm-hmm. says, you know, prove that um, n squared plus 1, n squared minus 1, zero, will always be a right triangle. And uh, then he says, but someone told me that that really doesn't belong in a regular book. It should be in an appendix. Siobhan, so I have done that. Yeah. You're right, yeah. Siobhan. Right? Mm-hmm. It should be in an appendix. And so I've done it that way. Hmm. Which, of course, you know, if there were a real Christopher, then really that might have been what happened. But this is a work of fiction. And so what, what the author has contrived is a way to raise the question in the context of the ongoing narrative but leave that as the last word of the novel. That there are ways, at least in the world of mathematics, to make sure that you always know when things are rectified. Hmm. I, 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 think the, I think the highlight for the, for the book <coughs> for me was, um, was the, the analysis of the, the, uh, the joke he gives. Um, was, uh, it's quite late in the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it sort of sums up uh, his his character. He, he says, uh, let's see, I, I don't know what page number this is. Uh, 64 of 100 something. Okay, I'm looking at the PDF. Uh, um, he says, um, and I realized I told a lie in chapter 13 because I said, I cannot tell jokes because I do know three jokes that I can tell and I understand one of them is about a cow. And Siobhan said, I didn't have to go back and change what I wrote in chapter 13 because it doesn't matter because it's not a lie. It's just a clarification. And this is the joke. There are three men on a train. One of them is an economist and one of them is a logician. And one of them is a mathematician. And they have just crossed the border into Scotland. I don't know why they are going to Scotland. And they see a brown cow standing in a field from the window of the train. And the cow is standing parallel to the train. And the economist says, look, the cows in Scotland are brown. And the logician says, no, there are cows in Scotland, of which one of, at least, is brown. And the mathematician says, no, there are at least one cow in Scotland, of which one side appears to be brown. And it is funny because the economists are not real scientists. (laughs) Because (laughs) let's think more clearly, but mathematicians are best. (laughs) Economists won't buy this book. (laughs) Um, And... uh, he thinks, uh, I, I like, you know, uh, if you start analyzing what makes something funny, um, you really do start, you know, seeing, okay, we can make a formula and, and, and this is going to be a funny joke or this isn't going to be a funny joke. But um, <laughs> what, why he likes it so much <laughs> and that he gets this joke and he doesn't get most jokes is because it's about something he cares about, which is um, ma- mathematicians are smarter than <laughs> logicians and economists, right? See, this is, this is an other example of how the book can give us more than it gives Christopher, and which is why I, I find, of course, he's an untrustworthy narrator, as you said, Jesse, so we know more than he does, but we also can get more out of his experiences than he can. This 
particular joke gives a whole new meaning to how now, brown cow. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It could have been a spotted cow. It could have been a horse, right? I don't think it's random that we're now getting a joke that could be labeled how now, brown cow. (laughs) He makes this stuff fit into our lives the same way Arthur Conan Doyle fits into our lives. The book is asking, what does it mean? To have knowledge. What is information as opposed to understanding? Uh, I, 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 there's there's so many wonderful things in this book. I mean, uh, when when the character is talking, most of the time he's making conclusions. I'm saying, yes, that's absolutely right. That makes total sense. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, brilliant writer of Sherlock Holmes stories, complete loon when it comes to uh, you know how understanding how the world actually works. Yet his character. You know, Sherlock Holmes is is uh, seems to be the you know the man who can't have come from the mind of of Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, believing in fairies. I mean, as he rightly points out, it's ridiculous. They're they're wearing little costumes. But these are natural beings. Uh, he's he's going to you know the 19th century people are getting into seances and talking to the dead and uh, how can how can he believe in any of that stuff it doesn't make any sense to me so when uh, cocaine <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I, I don't know did Arthur Conan Doyle do cocaine I thought it was oh yes oh, big really? time okay oh yeah big time I didn't realize well I still I don't think cocaine makes you believe in fairies I think uh, um, I think I uh, uh, yeah I think I think wanting to believe you know uh, wa- hoping to be- hoping that it's there, you know, bl- will blind you to the things that make it make it seem unrealistic, and and that's why I think the characters uh, usually I I don't characters aren't that important to me, but in this book it, he the character's wonderful. He's just he's really knows how to cut the bullshit out, and yet he's blind to a lot of of. Um, a lot of the social conventions that that other people are forcing upon him. Yeah, you know, I'm always surprised to find that he's 15 um, because I feel like his voice, I hear his voice much younger because of how he speaks and what he focuses on. There's kind of that Harriet the Spy element, you know, (laughs) you kind of expect him to be eight or nine or 10 maybe at the most. Yeah. Um, So I, I always am surprised. But then, that's really important for the conflict between he and his dad and the physical issue that they had. And, you know, because he's so big and strong and doesn't understand that he is, I think. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting he's, he's element. He's kind of a threat, too. I mean, when he's yeah. talking, about, uh, talking about having his, his pocket knife and he wants to sa- stab somebody, I'm like, yeah. dude, don't stab people. <laughs> <laughs> and he hit a cop. Yeah. 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 He's, got, he's got a... What is it? Sanction against him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Warning. By the way, I made it. I made a tag cloud of the book, so you can see which words were mentioned the most. Maybe they ignore things like "and" and "the," but I, I put a link in the chat room. I, I bet. Uh, yeah, it didn't work for me, but uh, maybe we can do a screenshot and put that in the, uh, the post. Okay. Interesting. I think "father" is the biggest one. <laughs> yeah. 
Christopher is up there. No, I think if if you include and it will um <laughs> it will be hot, highly ranked. Mm-hmm. Jesse, do you know what that whole Okay, I'm going to read you something and tell me if you if you recognize this. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair and when I got out of bed this morning I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible horrible no good very bad day do you guys know that book (laughs) I do Alexander Judith Fjord right yeah isn't that Judith Fjord I think you're right yeah Alexander's terrible no good very bad day uh huh. Yeah. But the emphasis on the and mm-hmm. and just that whole patterning. That whole book is, is like that. Yeah. That yeah, was, it reminded me very much of that. Mm-hmm. Which is also another very youthful voice. Yeah. Yep. Compared to actually. So, so when you find that in Slaughterhouse Five, and so on, and so on, and so on, how does it work differently? Because surely it does. Well, here it it gives him a really, like we said, really youthful voice, right? Um, but there it certainly doesn't do that in Slaughterhouse Five. I guess his, his attitude is more uh, sarcastic. I, I communicates yeah. attitude. Maybe you know the and so on says. And of course, there's a pattern, and it's going to repeat indefinitely. And so he's world weary and ironic and sarcastic. Whereas, it's not just that that Christopher or Alexander in the Judith Fjord book is saying "and," but every "and" introduces something that has autonomy. It's like its whole thing all by itself, rather than and just being part of a pattern. And that freshness might be, I think, I'm just guessing here, Jenny, what makes it seem youthful. Hmm. I'm, reminded of, uh, I'm reminded of Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man with that same kind of a thing. Doesn't he say, and so it goes a few times during that? Maybe that's only hmm. in the audio drama, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the phrase, and so it goes. Maybe I'm wrong. I remember, and so it goes also from Vonnegut. I don't remember it from the Ellison, but yeah. it may be there. Okay. Maybe the ad in this book also shows his, his sense of wonder. I wrote that down about all, all the things in the universe that he wants to talk about and learn about. His enthusiasm. Right. That's what I meant. Each thing has its own autonomy. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's not like... Oh, there's you know a gazillion stars. It's there's this star and that star and that star and right. that star. Mm-hmm. Well, and he even points out how he looks at a, a scene or a room completely differently from everyone else. Like other people might walk into a room and notice who's there, and that's the last thing they notice. But he walks into a room and he notices the number of forks on the table and the color of paint and the time that it is and, and the pattern on someone's socks. Right. So it kind of speaks to that. He's listing things in his head all the time. He's observing, not not merely seeing. <laughs> That's, he doesn't even have a choice. Like, he can't stop his brain from working that way, so. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that line I'm looking for, um, let's see. Who is it? Who who talks about uh, the poet does not number the streaks of the tulip? Is that is that Pope who says that? Don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Um, let's see. I've got a. Anything asked away, book called Christopher Dog Door, Eyes, Father, Garden Going, Happen Head, Home House, Killed, Live, London, Looked, Lots, Man, Math Means, Meant, Mother, Mrs., Okay, Opened, People, Policeman, Real Room, School, Shears, Siobhan, Someone, Something, Sometimes, Station, Things, Think, Aha, Think, Thought, Toby, Told, Took, Train, Walked, Wellington, Work. Uh, do you think that Toby was uh, supposed to be a reference to um, to uh, Algernon? To what? To Algernon from Flowers for Algernon. Oh, wow, that's a really good point. The rat. Yeah, the rat. Because yeah. the rat doesn't play a huge role in this story. Huh. But, but I he's just always thought, there. I did. Yeah, that's neat. He, he chews up every scene. <laughs> he chews up. Huh. <laughs> you don't think it could have to do with Uncle Toby, who's always riding his own hobby horse? <laughs> I have no idea. I've never heard of that expression. Oh, the expression to ride your own hobby horse, meaning you're just doing the stuff that occurs to you. It's, it's your e-day fix, um, is exists in the 18th century and is made popular by Uncle Toby, who has that trait of always riding his own hobby horse, actually riding a hobby horse in Tristram Shandy, ah. which is, you know, probably the the single most um, interesting, meandering, bizarrely constructed novel of the 18th century. Uh, and by the way, uh, speaking of the 18th century, I think the first volume of that comes out in 1766, I could be getting that wrong, but um, it wasn't Pope who said about the numbering the streaks of the poet, it was Johnson, who's Pope's direct contemporary, and it turns out it's in Rasselas that the character who guides this prince to his naive movement through the world, um, you, you guys familiar with Rasselas? Not me. Um, Rasselas is like bit. Candide. Rasselas is like Candide, and it's it's a, a guy who is raised as a prince. Everything always works fine for him in his cocooned little world. And he decides he wants to go see the world, so he goes out to see the world, and he is just utterly disappointed by everything that he sees. Um, and a, a guide for him is a philosopher named Imlac, and the poet, um, the business of the poet, Imlac says, is to examine not the individual but the species to remark general properties and large appearances. He does not number the streaks of the po of the tulip or describe the different shades in the verdure of the forest. He is to exhibit in his portraits of nature such prominent and striking features as recall the original to every mind and must neglect the minuter discriminations which one may have remarked and another have neglected for those characteristics which are alike obvious to vigilance and to carelessness. In other words, this phrase, the poet does not number the streaks of the tulip, which is a fairly famous phrase in the history of rhetoric um, or aesthetic theory, uh, is exactly given the lie by this book. Hmm. What, what Mark Haddon has been able to do here is construct a real sense of character 
by giving us someone whose joy is in numbering the streaks of the tulip because he's not willing to reduce everything to a pattern, in part because he has difficulty reducing things to patterns, except in mathematical terms, but in part because he gives more attention and respect to each individual thing, including counting the forks when he comes into the room. So I, I do think that uh, there's an argument going on here. And as I say, this is uh, if I've got my dates right, this is within less than, less than a decade, eight and a half from, uh, from Uncle Toby and his hobby horse with his fixed idea. <laughs> Uncle Toby is a breakfast cereal in Australia, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, you know, what, this reminds me, I just looked up Rasselas, and I, I, I read about it, but I've never read the book. Um, one of the thing, one of the ways I find myself uh, reading, you know, I don't go by what's popular. Uh, I mean, this book is I don't it, it it's from two thousand three or something like that. Is that right? It's hard to let's see. Um, two thousand two. Okay, so um, it's it's not super new. Uh, the reason I picked it up was because uh, I needed to read it, and I thought, oh, this is good, even though I I hadn't picked it up before other people had read it in the past. Um, the way I generally like to read things is I'm reading something, and then in that book that I'm enjoying, the author has placed the title of another book. And I say, oh, that sounds interesting. And I, I think the first time I, um, uh, I did that, uh, that I said, I wonder if that book's real. Um, I, I was reading, maybe, I, maybe it was that book. It was uh, Have Spacesuit, Will Travel uh, by Heinlein. Um, and uh, the main character wants a spacesuit, and he goes to his father and says, I want a spacesuit, Dad. And he says, well, you better get yourself one then. And he went back to reading his book, which was Jerome K. Jerome's uh, Three Men in a Boat. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a weird name for a book. Um, and the father is enjoying himself reading the book and the and the son says well i guess i better figure out a way to get a spacesuit then and you know walks out out of the scene and um and then i'm in the library and i said wait a second jerome k jerome and three minutes in a boat it's a real book <laughs> <laughs> since then i've 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 thought well people who write good books have have to have read good books what books have they read well they put it in the book right they are specifically choosing what books to put in the hands of fictional characters. And they don't generally pick non-existent books, although they can. Uh, they generally pick real books. And so um, with Rasselas, uh, the history of Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia, um, there's a Wikipedia entry saying all the different uh, times it's mentioned in other notable literature. <laughs> it's uh, in Jane Eyre. Helen Burns reads it. It's in Cransford. Uh, it's in uh, The House of Seven Gables, which I want to read at some point. Um, it's in uh, Little Women, <laughs> Scott. Uh, the book is dropped on the floor when Joe March, by Joe March, as she talks to Mr. Lawrence about his grandson Laurie's prank. Mm -hmm. It's in Middle March. It's in Mansfield Park. Uh, it's in The Mill on the Floss and probably dozens of others. Um, and we even got to it in this book somehow. <laughs> As I said, very famous. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's a really good way to read. I think you you read by um, uh, that's how I discovered uh, 
uh, Donald Westlake. I discovered Donald Westlake through Lawrence Block. Lawrence Block put uh, his character was reading a book, and and he actually put the text of the book he was reading into the book. I said, "Wow, that sounds like a great book." And then I went and found it. Turned out he was right. It was a great book. <laughs> yeah. Well. I think Joe Walden's, among others, has a ton of real science fiction books she talks about in them. Hmm. Interesting. She talks about her. Yeah, doesn't it, doesn't it seem to be a trend trust. right now? Um, is books that reference other books, or it, it seems that you know the TV shows that I watch are more self self referential than um, in the past. You know, starting probably with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then. Um, did, uh, you know, am I wrong? Doesn't it seem like that? You know, Star Trek really didn't reference anything like that. But then mm. you you get well, into sure all these. Well, not by, not by name, season, no. by the third season, they're having a gunfight at the OK Corral. No, I mean, that's true. They're doing all kinds of yeah. referencing, and yeah, I think okay. I think it has to do with the first as opposed to the third season. Uh-huh. The, your use of the word self-referential. I'm gonna. This is something I've actually published. Um, no matter. When a work of art calls attention to its existence as a work of art, in some way, no matter what else it's doing, no matter what else that reference is there for, it reminds you that you're you're not supposed to just look through this thing as if there were a fictional world out there because this thing is itself a work of art. But since you want to be looking through that world and seeing the fictional world out there... No matter what else it's doing, every act of self-reflexivity, self-reference, to use your term, Scott, uh, is a reality claim for the world of the work of art. And it seems to me that one of the reasons that we're finding more self-referentiality in shows these days, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is Our that we are, well, we are getting more fantasy shows. Mm-hmm. And there's more fantasy, there's more science fiction, there's more weird things, fringe, lost, and so on. And those shows need to make claims for their own reality or they devolve into triviality because they are so obviously not the world we live in. Yeah. And so they, they make those claims in a lot of ways. And one of the ways to do that is to be self-referential. To a, You know, it's... It, Wells does this in uh, in the time machine. He, when the time traveler comes back um, after having spent his time in eight hundred two seven hundred one, and he's telling what's happened to the uh, people around the dinner table. They are appearing quizzical, and he says, "All right, say it didn't happen. Say I spent the afternoon in the laboratory taking it as a story. What do you think of it?" And of course, by saying taking it as a story, what he's really claiming is, that is what Wells is claiming, not the time traveler, is that, of course, this isn't a story. This is real. And when, when someone drops a copy of a book that you could get in your library, this is real. Hmm. So all of these, these references build up a sense of the reality of the narrative world. I think that we get more of that these days in part because we have become tired and we need to make things more interesting, so we, we try to add more weight to them, and that's what happened in the third season of Star Trek, and that's what happens as we find ourselves moving more and more toward fantastic uh, 
public entertainments, which makes a lot of sense when reality is failing you. My, well, understanding, is, my understanding is the reason that we got a lot more of that in the third season of, uh, of Star Trek is the budget was cut. And so they, they had to, you know, think, well, we've got, we've got, a, we've got a, all these uh, cowboys' uh, costumes, and uh, we don't have a full budget for, for a set. So how about we build a half set, and they're on this alien planet that, right? It's like, uh, the what's that? The Spectre of the Gun, right? It's 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 actually one of the better episodes, but it's the one you mentioned, the gunfight at the OK Corral, right? Uh, where it, I mean, it's if you think about it, it's a very excellent um, kind of story because he's, we just give you the skeleton. You don't need the full universe. You just need the skeleton to tell to, to tell the story, right? It is a very meta episode of Star Trek. Hmm. Right? I, I think someone said on this podcast, um, you know, it was a long time ago that most of the protagonists in science fiction novels don't read science fiction, and I thought that was an interesting statement because it's it's true. You know, I, I don't see a lot of that in um, hard science fiction until lately. Hmm. Yeah, you know, Scott, you're right. Because I, like, Ready Player One that just came out is very nostalgia-based. And it talks about, you know, old science fiction movies and books and games. Mm -hmm. And then one of the stories that was nominated for, it was either the Hugo or the Nebula, was all about nostalgia. Like, this guy's in this spaceship in this room with all of these oh, old... Oh, in the Martian one, isn't wasn't it? Uh, yeah. The one, uh, yeah, I, I can't recall what the... Ion Steel? Well, oh, say it again, Tam. The Moons uh, of Mars, I, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah, it was about it was about this guy author. that was on Mars who was kind of losing touch with reality, Mars, and they yeah. were they were referring mm -hmm. to all kinds of Martian fiction because he was kind of immersing himself in it all. That was a neat story. Yeah, yeah. it was kind of like a love story to science fiction in some ways, but mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it was very chock full of that. Yeah. I, I think it works as a short story. It's one of the reasons I'd, I I've sort of shied away from Ready Player One is. Is all the reviews seem to be? It's if you like nostalgia, you'll love this. It's full of great nostalgia. And it's like, yeah, but just nostalgia? That's not a novel. Yes, but if you'd read my review of it, you would know it <laughs> wasn't just nostalgia. <laughs> well, there are puzzles, right? Yeah. Will you send us the link, Jenny? It's on the SSF Audio website, actually. <laughs> sure. We'll put a link in the podcast. <laughs> just a little plug there. Yeah, we'll get you one. Yeah. We'll refer refer to the the notes of this own podcast and we'll put them in there because I'm not someone who's played a lot of video games and certainly not in the eighties and I still really enjoyed it. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I really want to like a lot of current fiction, but I find, you know, if it hasn't stood some sort of test of time, it's probably not going to do it for me. It just, <laughs> I, I, I like, I get so like, I, I was talking to Scott not that long ago, but I get so much more satisfaction out of out of out of um, you know having handed to me a, a winnowed book, some, something that's been you know tossed on the seas for a hundred years uh, or fifty years or twenty years, and then you know shows up on my my beach um, is it, it's just probably got some strong strength to it that is. It, it, that a modern book probably doesn't, and and that's just because all the other stuff had sunk, right? And hmm. so in ten years we'll check back on this book and see if it's good. <laughs> well, I I, I think I think this is it's it's just the structure that I don't like, and I, I think it's because it's 
I mean, it, it's a short novel, right? This is a short novel, but I think this is, should have been a novella. I think it would have worked a lot better as a novella. I, I really enjoyed the length of it. Um, you know, I, I it, it was a short novel. Um, the audiobook was only five CDs long. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, yeah anyway, it was really quick. I, I felt it was excellent. Yeah. I, I I read this twice, which uh, because I read it in two different contexts, um, and it's very rare for me to be willing to read a book twice. So I guess I have to say, I too did not find wasted pages here. <laughs> and you wanted to discuss it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it must be good. Yeah, I I did want to discuss it because it moved me. Um, I. I think that there. I think there are a lot of things that fiction can do. One of the things that fiction can do. I happen to be. Uh, I've never read uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin before, and I happen to be within about eighty pages of finishing reading that. Um, and one of the things that fiction can do is engage the issues of its contemporary audience. Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin turns out to be um, very expertly written blatant propaganda melodrama mm-hmm. um, and frankly um, I would happily recommend it to somebody who wanted to learn about the principles of writing melodramatic propaganda but it's not a book that um, does much for me today except generate a sense of guilt about America's past but I can see that reading it in 1853 when slavery was in fact in full force, it wouldn't just make you feel guilty. It would make you feel like, hey, God damn it, I have to do something. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, when you say... We need a book like that today. (laughs) Well, well, you know, there is actually a book like that today. Super Sad True Love Story Ah. by Gary Steingart looks an awful lot like a prediction of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm. Yeah, I've read that one. Hmm. Um, but it ends up mostly being a love story in the end. It, it does indeed. And uh, who knows what's going on in those tents in Zuccotti Park. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to keep warm at night. <laughs> right. But it does seem to me that you know books can do a lot of things. And so when you say that you don't find uh, you, that you want winnowed books, the ones that come up, uh, you know, get, get mixing your metaphors, which yeah. is great. Um, Sorry. You know, the salad of metaphors. That's good. Um, you know, come up on the beach a hundred years later. Um, I think that is absolutely completely legitimate. There is something to, there is something to be said for reading the uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin now, but it is different from what it would be to read Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1853. Um, and what I'm hearing you say, uh, Jess, is that, um, is that uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime? You don't think, because of your view of the structure of it, you don't think that a hundred years from now people are going to find this interesting. Um, and I'd like to to suggest that some may, but because they're going to be doing it in a different way. When I when I read Light in August, um, Faulkner's main character, who cannot figure out how he fits in the world racially, and winds up being quite a violent character, you know, Joe Christmas. Um, I, I wanted to hate him because of the, the clearly bad things that he does. But because Faulkner allows me to understand 
his mind so well and how much his mind is shaped by the conflicting issues of racism in the world around him, whether he's in the white part of the world or the black part of the world, whether he's passing or whether he's acknowledging his black heritage. Um, I felt enough understanding of Joe Christmas that even though I condemned his acts, I did not find that I hated him. Mm. I found that I understood him and I wished his life had been different. Yes, he deserves punishment for what he's done, but that's his tragedy. It's not his, it's not his evil, or at least that's how it felt to me. And it seems to me that, and that's, of course, from, I forget, Light in August is probably somewhere around 1930. Uh, and that, that's not our world anymore. I mean, we live in a world, at least in the United States, where in most cities, people who are biracial have no difficulty whatsoever being accepted in all kinds of social contexts. But if if we're lucky, um, another 80 years from now, people who have Asperger's won't have any trouble being accepted in all kinds of social contexts. But I think that just as the humanizing experience of reading Light in August was valuable to me, not in 1930, I'm hoping that the humanizing influence of reading The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime will be valuable 80 years hence as well. But then I don't read it as being structurally flawed. So, no, yeah, I, I think, you know, like, um, let's compare it to uh, Speed of Dark. You, have you read that? The, I have not. Oh, well, um, it's, it's, it's very similar in that it's got a... I think he's supposed to have Asperger's or it might be autism. It doesn't really matter. Um, he, he's he is not neurotypical, I guess is the expression. Uh, and he's it's it's very much inspired by um, by uh, Flowers for Algernon in that it's it, the character is given a choice whether he can be made normal or not. Um, and there's some there's some. Uh, you, you'd, I think you'd quite like it. It's got a lot of stuff about community, <laughs> and it's got a lot of. Um, uh, it's got, uh, the, you know, the arc. There's a mystery. There's a, not a murder, but there's a mystery, and um, I think just the, it, it flows very well uh, as a novel. But it also has all the the pathos uh, of of understanding that this book engenders, and. Uh, in the, in the same way that I guess Flowers for Algernon does in a less uh, saddening way. <laughs> um, but uh, I just, I, I think that the, the form of novels tends to make people uh, write certain ways. You know, it, it, I guess it's just novels have to be a certain length if, you, if you're going to sell books and and win prizes. This book, I was looking at the Wikipedia entry, it won a whole bunch of prizes and awards, I guess. Uh, it, it resonated with a lot of people. And I saw one person said, great, when's the sequel? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no, there's no sequel. I hope there's no sequel because this is not a book that needs a sequel. Christopher uh, goes to college. Christopher <laughs> goes to college. I mean, if people could do it, but um, what are the chances of it being improved by having more of the same. I, I think that, that series hurt us in a, in a way because they deprive us of the time that could be spent doing something more interesting. 
than revisiting a character. The characters shouldn't be always being wanted to be revisited. We should find new avenues to approach. And I think that the that after a certain point in this novel, it becomes about the chase and about what's going to happen next. And I wonder what's, you know, that wondering what's going to happen next, not so interesting as much as what is, what is being, what idea is being explored? I guess I just saw the whole thing differently. You know, like the mystery story, that's the book that Christopher's writing, but it's not the book. No, it's not. I wish it was. I wish it was. (laughs) On, on page 100, Christopher writes, he's talking about how populations rise and fall. Mm. He writes, but sometimes a mystery isn't a mystery. And this is an example of a mystery which isn't a mystery. And then he follows by giving his example. But until he follows and gives his example, the this could just as easily refer to this book. Mm. <laughs> and and I, think, I think I'm with you on this, Jenny. Uh, Christopher is involved in solving a mystery. I don't actually care that much about a dead dog. Right. Um, but I care a lot about Christopher trying to make order in the world by making this first move across the street. Right, and the train trip isn't just about getting from one place to the other. It's demonstrating the like the application of everything he's been learning from people like Siobhan and from his father an actual practical application, you know, is he going to be able to filter it out to actually act like everyone else, you know, right. that's kind of the struggle. It's not necessarily the, the journey itself. He doesn't, he's not a great actor. He's not a great actor because <laughs> nobody thinks, Oh, this guy's acting perfectly normally. Right. right. Everybody thinks what the hell, you know, and <laughs> I, I, I guess there, they are, uh, people are used to using, uh, metaphor to, as a way of of ju- using shortcuts to understand the world. He's just crazy. Um, you know, they use the, the expressions, what the fuck's wrong with you, kid, and s- such. Uh, it's it, it comes across as they're all being, you know, socially obvious, and he's not being socially obvious. What's wrong with him? Right. Uh, but like you, you, you did. You used the expression, "What has he learned, and how, can he do it?" We all do this in a certain way, and that's why I, when I read these books, I, I see my, especially when it's told first person, I see myself in the character. Say, "Oh yeah, I know somebody who did something like that, or that sort of happened to me. I sort of do that sort of thing," um, and that that uh, that ties us into it. But I guess I'm more like Christopher than I am like Mark Hatton, in the sense that. I I do care about the mystery, um, and I don't so much care about about the um, the uh, drama. The drama. I I uh, you know his parents are assholes. His his mom is is an asshole in a certain way. She's maybe she thinks she's doing the best she can. Um, I really don't want to deal with that because it's just I I got enough of that in the <laughs> in the real world, you know, um, and. The father, uh, you know, he's he's a compelling character. Uh, I kind of still don't understand exactly what happened uh, that he had to kill that dog, um, but well, sometimes things like that, you know, are not completely solved. I'm I'm okay with that. I thought he was kind of jealous because uh, his wife was having an affair with the sure husband, but I still don't understand that exactly. 
I mean, I guess I'm like, kind of like Christopher in that sense. I, I don't... I don't... It's a pretty violent way to act out. I, 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 was, I, I thought part of the question was, um, should Christopher uh, stay with his mom? Doesn't sound like she's a good choice. Should, should he stay with his dad? That doesn't sound like a very good choice either. Somebody can murder a dog. That doesn't sound like somebody you want to spend time with. Right, and of I course, think his... old... I beg your pardon, Jenny. Go ahead. That's okay. I think his mom is content to let him stay in one place too in his life, because once once he gets to her house, you know she doesn't want to take him back for the maths exam, and it's the most important thing to him, and he knows he can do it because hey, he just took the train all the way to see her, right? He'd never done that before, and he has this plan for his life that I don't even think his parents necessarily share. And that kind of shows me that he's growing. The father definitely shares it. Uh, the, I mean, the father is, uh, other than the fact that he's a murderer, he's he's <laughs> one of the best parents you can see in a book, right? He's, right. It sounds like he's willing to relocate to help him go to college. It, it, he's he's he makes the school. Uh, you know, he says, "I'll pay money out of my own pocket for you guys to do your job," right? Right. He's definitely he's very proud of him. Well, he, but he's also you know he's looking after his best best interests. Um, and so I, I think a lot Who's of best the, interest uh, of Christopher's best interests. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think that the the revelation that that the father is the murderer is emotionally the most powerful part of the book, and to have that so early on, um, I guess the story could have been wrapped up a lot faster. Is what I'm saying. And that his mother isn't dead. <laughs> I think that that's. I think that that's a, also. That was uh, I, a biggie. I think, yeah. I think that that's also uh, a good, a good twist. But after you know, like when she was talking in her letter, she was talking about how um, she, if she hadn't married her fa- uh, his Christopher's father. She would have been living in the south of France with a man named blah blah blah, and uh, have a garden with some like she had planned out her whole dreamed life, right? That is obviously uh, a fantasy of hers, and she lives in a fantasy world, right? If you read what what I guess we all do to a certain degree, but she lives in a fantasy world very explicitly in her letters. Um, she says, uh, we're moving into a new apartment. I don't like it very much, but we can paint the walls any color we like. right? And when Christopher gets there, the, the walls are brown. She is living selfishly. <laughs> she is living selfishly <laughs> for herself. And France has no schedule. Child, when you have a child, you cannot be a selfish person in that respect. You have to say, well, wait a second. What would be the appropriate color to paint your walls if you owned an apartment and you knew that your son hated the color brown? What would be the appropriate color? Well, it certainly wouldn't be brown. But she's a selfish person. We know this from the fact that she ran away from home, right? She ran away from home and didn't didn't make much more than a token, you know, write a letter uh, effort to, to... take responsibility for her child. In science fiction, um, we usually get, this is quite famous, um, I shouldn't say usually, we often get enormous um, images that dramatize things that we all understand in our own life, but not so vividly. 
So instead of having a stranger come into town and that makes you question exactly your relationship to the world, you get a nine-foot-tall Venusian come mm. to town, right? Uh, instead of uh, having to deal with the problem of technological change and, gee, you know, maybe I'm going to be out of work, you deal with a whole civilization that has collapsed because a new power system has obviated most of what used to exist before. Right? I mean, so science fiction gives us these really big things, and we don't dismiss them as being foolish. We accept them as a rhetorical device that allows us to tell a good story that also bears on our lives. It's and, a clarified version of life, right? You okay, don't. Let, so it, let's take that word clarified. Yeah, it's like just, I mean, like in the in the cooking well, sense. Right? Yes, I understand. I understand. You, you, it, it's as good as butter, right? As smooth <laughs> as butter, right? Um, it, one way to read the mother is as a clarified mother. Yes. Right? I mean, instead of thinking she's a bad mother, she does. I would guess that 90% of the people in the world, if they were to ask, if they were asked, could your mother have done more for you? Are there other things you would have wished from your mother? Even those who think they had wonderful mothers would say, well, you know, but she did have to work so hard. I understand why she was short-tempered sometimes. Or, you know, I mean, what child doesn't want just at least a little bit more from his mother? So this mother is a clarified mother. And to say, well, it's not interesting because she's not a good mother to begin with, but he has no mother. And to have a mother who is at least a little bit of a good mother is a great step forward for Christopher. Hmm. But by the way, um, we keep using the word murder about the death of Wellington. Indeed. <laughs> um, I'm a vegetarian, so you know I'm not keen on killing animals, obviously. Um, but... I wouldn't use the word murder in killing a dog. I use the word murder because that's the word Christopher used. Um, exactly. I've, I've, I've had emailed conversation actually with Julie. I was going to mention earlier, Julie, you know, Julie Davis from Forgotten Classics. She actually uh, did a, a wonderful reading of um, the book you're just about to finish uh, uh, that's escaping my mind right now. Uncle Tom's, um, Tom's Cabin. Cabin. Uncle yeah. Tom's Cabin. Yeah, she did a, mm -hmm. uh, a, a complete reading, and she also did a lot of commentary and talking about uh, it as the parable for the, you know, the Christian parable that it is, and 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 the propaganda that it is. You should um, maybe I'll link to that in the podcast notes. But um, I was going to say I had a conversation with her by email that uh, was very emotional for her, and uh, and it's because. <laughs> she was talking about what murder is, and and I was saying, well, you know, one person's murder is another person's killing, right? Some people say killing uh, cows is murder. <laughs> There's a famous uh, Canadian song about um, <laughs> uh, eating vegetables is murder, <laughs> right? Um, I I think murder is a loaded word, but because I... Christopher uses that word, and that's the way he sees it, that's the way we have to understand it. And I would go back to the notion that we are, 
we do know that your opening comment about Christopher being an untrustworthy narrator, I think we are invited by the book to see things not only as Christopher sees them, but also as we might judge them. And one of the reasons that Christopher calls this a murder is that there does exist the genre of detective story. He knows it. He makes reference to Arthur Conan Doyle. And within the context of that fairy tale structure. I mean, let's face it, real mm-hmm. real crimes and real solutions don't happen the way Doyle gives them to us. No. Um, within this, the context of that structure, Christopher is able to move forward, to actually do something in the world. So for him, it's important to call this a murder. But for us, especially once we realize the motive behind the killing, I mean, let's face it, you could say, well, I don't like a guy who could kill a dog. But if the anger and the justification for the anger are so overbearing and so real that the alternative would be to kill a man, maybe killing the dog is sufficiently understandable that just like killing a brown cow because you want to have meat, you know, it's not murder. And we need to understand that Christopher is shaped in part by his father's passions, not just shaped by his mental developmental issues. Um, The relationship between Christopher and his father is really, I think, very powerfully drawn here. At first, we're thinking, what a wonderful father. Then we think, oh, you know, he comes to his limits sometimes. And ultimately, I think we have to recognize that you know, all parents come to their limits, which may be one reason that all kids would want more from their parents than their parents ever give them. So, again, it's a clarified father. It's, yeah. it's clarified jealous rage. Well, there's something also about, you know, dumb people being forced to be smart or uh, irrational people being forced to be rational. The father is, is not a genius, right? He's just a man, and he's forced to be incredibly clever to raise his son as best he can. He's just a man. Uh, he's not, you know, a parenting genius. But he's, you know, he can't <laughs> hug his son. That's that's a an emotional problem that a lot of parents would have great difficulty with. He figures out a way to to show to to get some sort of feedback of love from his child that he needs. And yeah. the child says, "Okay, yeah, I can deal with that uh, that way." But the kid, the kid, as all children are, is incredibly selfish, right? <laughs> doesn't understand that the parents have their own minds in their own world uh and so i i can see you know he is a uh on the one hand he's a, uh a murderer from christopher's point of view a killer at least from from the uh from the 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 neighbor's point of view, the the neighbor's, the owner of the dog's point of view, and he doesn't own up to it until too late. He also does all sorts of other terrible things, like lying to his son about his mother being dead. He doesn't do it out of hate, but out of difficulty and, and problems. But uh, it comes razor, <laughs> right? I mean, the book is giving us the ability to to make judgments about this. That's the, that's part of the reason for the discussion of Occam's Razor. Mm. Well, I guess I guess if a book is able to provoke some uh, discussion, then it can't be uh, a terrible book. I'm not saying that it is, though. I think I think <laughs> it's just 
the mainstream elements just they weigh me down in a way that uh, I, I think we we get most of it if we just uh, like most of the goodness comes just I can't argue you guys into changing your feelings but I can argue into explaining to why it doesn't work for me and uh, I guess I'm saying I, I don't want to read a lot of more mainstream books after this one because I I was tricked. I thought this was a mystery book. <laughs> Maybe it was a novella, then they had them expanded and uh, expanded I, from the mystery. I, I think that that's entirely possible. You know, the the, the, the pressures of the marketplace and the pressures, you know, uh, think of in, even the way, you know, Margaret Atwood talks. She's writing a, trilo- a science fiction trilogy, right? And she says, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, it's the third book in her science fiction trilogy. Okay, well, guess what? She used to not write trilogies. The reason she's writing trilogies now is not because suddenly she found the form that is so wonderful to express her. No, that's not it. It's the market. And she might delude herself into thinking that that's not the case. But the market the market is, is controlling a lot of the production. And I don't even care because those are some of my favorite books. And <laughs> definitely my favorite books that she's ever written. So I will read them uh, wow. over and over. And are I you don't saying, even... are you saying Get them, Jenny. Are <laughs> you saying this, late, this latest trilogy is better than The Handmaid's Tale? Yes. Wow. That is because old. They are, they are intertwined. They ask really important questions. I've had the best discussions about the ending of Oryx and Craig than I've had about any book. Wow. So, yeah, I really like them. <laughs> Would you put her on the list? Put this like book a, on the list. <laughs> would you like a sequel to uh, to this book? No. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think every book needs one. You know? I, I think it didn't need any. I think the genius of the way Atwood did it though, it's it's not a consecutive sequel. It's a simultaneous <laughs> So she's telling the same story three ways. Wells didn't need any. He didn't need any sequels. <laughs> it seems okay. to me that a sequel is as sequel does. I don't like reading trilogies usually just because I like to really go slowly and savor texts. And I'm not usually willing to give up 900 pages of my life or 1,500 pages of my life to one work. I was but that's a, that's a matter of taste. David Copperfield. On the other it's hand, a, it's a it's a nightmare of length, so I'm I'm worried about reading it. Yeah, well, uh, of course. Uh, but you know, when I saw The Godfather, I didn't think it needed a sequel either. It was perfectly good all by itself. Mm-hmm. Godfather Two is dynamite, <laughs> or Matrix, uh, or any uh, any of the other so, ones. What, what I'm saying is, a sequel is a sequel does. You know, you you don't know that a. I mean, there are some works that are written so that they are incomplete unless something else happens. I think that's a cheat, and I don't like being sucked into that. But there are lots of works that seem entirely complete, and then somebody else, or maybe the very same author, figures out a way to write yet another one, and you think, hey, by golly, good for you. And so I don't have anything against sequels. I just have, well, you know, I have something against being forced into sequels. I think the reason that it happens so much more often in science fiction and fantasy, though, is because with just contemporary literature, it's written in a world we know. And an author in science fiction and fantasy spends so much time world building that I'm not surprised that they want to keep writing in it, whether or not they're successful, you know, because they they have it in their head and, and they know the world and they know the characters. And I don't think there's 
often a time where you can tell the whole story of that world in one book. I think that's I think that's that's right, and I would would say that the market has a real virtue here because no matter I mean to take you know your infinite number of hypothetical science fiction writers constructing an infinite number of hypothetical science fiction worlds the worlds that the market wants are going to be discovered by having the authors do that what you just described Jenny mm-hmm. and and frankly sometimes the world is more the point yeah. I mean I mean, I I don't read a lot of mystery stories, but I read some. Uh, I know I've got a friend who's one of those Baker Street Irregulars. And, I mean, he's read the whole of Sherlock Holmes probably a score of times in his lifetime. Um, He just likes the feeling of London and the feeling of that controlled world. The idea that as... as, uh, Auden says in an essay in The Enchafed Flood, hidden guilt will be revealed. He wants to go back into that world. I know people who reread Agatha Christie all the time. Um, so maybe people are making trilogies. The market says which trilogy is going to work. But I think, I think Jenny is right that the constructing of the world can be such an enormously important artistic activity that not only does it offer a payoff for the author, to return to that world, it offers a payoff to many readers to get mm-hmm. to go back into that world. We, we uh, you know, t- I think Tamahomi uh, linked to me uh, a while ago. Now I, I think about this article or essay uh, a lot. It's a uh, it's called the tyranny of the talented reader, and the thesis of the of the article is that the the talented reader is someone who can read. Uh, for six or seven hours a day, and and they have have a consuming desire to be reading at all times, and to get through, to to do that, they need to have a, to be constantly fed, and they want to be fed what they've had before, and that drives the market to this sequel, 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 you know, endless twenty book series on vampires with, you know, romance or whatever. And and the 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 distortion of that has effects on on the people who aren't talented in in, uh, <laughs> in that way. I, 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 and you know the word talented is is in uh, scare quotes. So I would say um, I just want to try and avoid falling into that. And it's hard to know exactly when you start begin research. Uh, wh- whether you're going to fall into that or not, I I like to pick up a book and then oh I find out there's a, a sequel planned oh that actually scares me I want to yeah. not pick up the next book so yeah don't get me wrong I mean I've been roped into reading things before like I abandoned the Wheel of Time maybe after the third book because you start to realize that they are writing for that money you know because nothing happens until the end. And then it's just a cliffhanger for the next book. I refuse to read books like that. Yeah. And the so, publishing world is big enough. You should be able to find plenty to read that's good. <laughs> well, but uh, what my way of doing that, I think, is is to to look to the past, right? Not to try and under, to understand the present is very difficult. We we have a, a very limited view of it, and we don't have a lot of um, perspective. Uh, but when we look at, you know. 
what was popular in the 1980s, like what we're going to be doing next week, right, Neuromancer. That's a that's a book that I think uh, may have passed its prime in a certain way, um, but is a well. But I think also Jenny's rereading the whole trilogy. The yeah, see, as far as I know, there is no trilogy. There's only the first book. And I, oh, fascinating. Well, she likes the second book. But you know, well, last I, I also wanted to point out that last week we did a uh, recording of, or maybe it was not last week, but. We did uh, the last podcast was um, of a half hour short story. It has a massive world, right? That's constructed. Um, I'm talking about Home is the Hunter by Henry Cutner. It has a massive world that's constructed. There's a there's a plot. There's a story. There's everything that you get in a regular in a regular story, and yet it's done so concisely that it, it's like it's like uh, power per word, you know, if you compare power per word for a short story like that with The Wheel of Time, <laughs> we're talking massive diminishing returns after after the first book. Well, this this story does way more than I can imagine that entire series does in terms of delivering on ideas. And that's what I look to books for, I guess, is, is to deliver on ideas rather than deliver on uh, some sort of passing time, a way to make time pass. So I got lots of ways to make time pass now. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.